Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. from Quantlayer and thanks for listening to our podcast. So recently there's been a lot of interest in customized semiconductors. Bitcoin mining, for example, has highlighted the interest in ASICs or application-specific chips. And as we move up the customized application layer stack, discussion of AI and ML chips has become necessary. On this episode, we look at Kanan Mining, a Chinese Bitcoin mining chip manufacturer. And we look at them in the context of growing trends in AI and ML chips. We compare and contrast AMD and NVIDIA and discuss the new growth in startups in the traditionally capital intensive space. We finish up with what you should be on the lookout for when considering investing in these chip manufacturers. But before we get into the episode, a word from our sponsor, us. As our opening intro explains, Quantlayer is a software consultancy. We build software applications for our clients, help them with new product development, and work with them on tech strategy. We love working on all industry verticals, and we specialize in helping teams with complex problems and bringing features that integrate these problems to life. So real-time features like blockchain features, complex and interactive UIs, parallelism, think data aggregation and pipelining, for example, search and indexing and alerts. If any of these more ambitious features sound interesting to you, I would love to chat with you. Drop me a line at vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Mary at quantlayer.com. Thanks. Hey everyone, you've got Quantlayer here. Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as the Wizard. What's going on, Fizan? Not much. All right. So today let's talk about Bitcoin mining, AI, ML chips, and all that. How's that sound? Yeah, sounds good. So recently, Kanan, it's a Chinese ASIC maker, filed their F1 recently with the SEC. We've talked about S1s in the past. F1 is basically just like an S1, except for foreign issuers. They're pretty much the same. There's a few minor details around like foreign jurisdiction, uh, legal matters, taxation, things like that. They're different, but we can probably think about them in in the same way. So let's walk through Kanan's F1. Uh, So they start the F1 off with their mission statement. And we've joked around in the past in terms of like what makes a good mission statement, what makes a bad one. So I'll read this off and maybe you can let me know what you think about this one. So their mission statement in this is to make supercomputing available for everyone and to enable the wide adoption of blockchain and AI technologies for better living, dot, dot, dot. This one's, I think, uh, reasonable. Okay. They're pretty scoped to making you know supercomputing available and then the actual domain in which they operate yep blockchain and ai technologies uh you know there's better living and all that but i think this is a very reasonable mission statement as far as some of the other ones we've talked about <laughs> yeah it's definitely better than you know raise the world's super consciousness right was that that was weworks the thing with this one is you know when i see something like the better living stuff like that's fine but when i see something like they highlight three of the words in this mission statement. The first one they highlight is supercomputing. I get that. 
And then it says enable the wide adoption of blockchain and AI technologies. So they also highlight blockchain and AI technologies as well, which are also very different. You would think they're very different technologies, but, you know, the way they're talking about what their plans are, you know, almost 100% of the revenue right now is specifically Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin ASICs, and they want to move into like ML and AI stuff. So I think at first glance, if I didn't know what they were doing, I probably would view this skeptically, but I think... As you pointed out, it is a little more reasonable than what you would think at first glance. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into some of that uh, later on when we do an overview of the types of chips that are out there. Yep. So quick overview on Canon. They have, uh, you should check out their F1. They have this little graphic that highlights the kind of like top level things that they do. So they call themselves a leading supercomputing solutions provider with deep know-how in designing and mass-producing high-power efficiency ASICs for Bitcoin mining machines and AI applications. So they have about a quarter of the market share in Bitcoin. As of the first half of 2019, they have almost a quarter, so 21.9% they claim. So they have almost a quarter of market share around Bitcoin mining machines. Of course, Bitmain is like the big guy, the big, the big gorilla that has a lot of the market share there. And I think we'll get into this, but we're going to look at their financials and how their gross margins and ASPs change over time. But they're heavily affected by Bitcoin's price, and which makes sense. You know, miners tend to buy new equipment when prices are more attractive and on a relative basis. So when prices are falling apart, it's less attractive, so they don't buy as many. So their Bitcoin mining machines, they've kind of laid out two, two areas of business. One their uh, current business and in the second, the business they want to get into. So their current business, Bitcoin mining machines. So they have the the Avalon miners. Uh, so it's a proprietary ASIC design that's embedded. And they have another ASIC for AI applications that they're working on. So this is, they say this is an AI chip for edge computing. And it's a one-stop integrated solution under SOC architecture. And we'll get into all that stuff in a little bit. So stepping back from like the market and industry stuff that they play in. I just want to highlight, so an F1 is a foreign issuer, and this is a Chinese company that's filing within the U.S. So on page four, they have this like, this diagram of their corporate structure. And it's, I thought this is kind of interesting. They have like, um, you should check it out. It kind of looks like a family tree, uh, but or a flowchart, but they have a business that's outside of the PRC and a set of businesses within the PRC. Usually when I see this, like, I don't like this kind of stuff. And what I mean by that, they have this Canon Inc. That is linked to a, which is based in the Cayman Islands. That's linked to a a limited holding company in Hong Kong called Canon Creative. So those are the two entities outside of the PRC, PRC People's Republic of China. Uh, and then they have a number of businesses within the PRC. So uh, one, for example, is Hangzhou Canon Creative Information Technology Limited. And that's connected to like a blockchain-specific company. Um, I won't read off all the names, but I'll, just based on what they they sound like, they have a blockchain company. They have Zhejiang Avalon Technology, which sounds like it's the subsidiary that makes the miners. And then they have this uh, intelligence agriculture company. I don't know what that is. But whenever I see like a corporate structure laid out like this, it's like it's a little concerning because you don't know exactly what's going on, especially because like, you know, a lot of this business, a lot of their business is outside the PRC, but 
it looks like a good chunk of the actual brunt work is happens within the PRC. So um, there's always like, it's always a little opaque, don't know exactly what's going on. So I'm not a huge fan of these kind of corporate structures, even if it was like, even US businesses do it. And it's always concerning because you're wondering if they're double counting revenue in certain places and they're self-dealing and things like that. So not accusing these guys of this, but uh, when I see something like this, it's uh, something I'd want to understand a bit better. All right. So minus that corporate structure diagram, I actually thought this was a pretty solid F1. They spend a good chunk of the F1 on their industry. And I thought that was really interesting. We should probably just kind of get into that. All right. So uh, they have this section It starts on page 100 called Industry Overview. And like I said, I really like this, um, how they've laid all this stuff out. They get into kind of the, the history of the IC industry, and then they get into the overview of blockchain applications with ASICs. So I'll read some of the stuff off. Um, they kind of define... Uh, I'm not going to read all of it off. Like, there's some definitional stuff, like what blockchain means and things like that. Um, but they have this little section called uh, "Overview of Bitcoin and Blockchain Mining Economics," which is pretty interesting. And so, this is what they say: the demand and price of Bitcoin mining machines are primarily determined by the expected economic return of Bitcoin mining activities, which is significantly affected by Bitcoin price, as well as other factors such as electricity price, hash rate, mining equipment, the total network hash rate, and difficulty of mining. The total network hash rate and the mining difficulty, which indicates the complexity of the task that miners need to solve to create the block are positively created, correlated in the sense that the more difficult mining on the network becomes, the more hash rate is needed, leading to additional demands for mining hardware within the network. And we've seen that like in actually play out. And they have a chart on the following page, how the Bitcoin network's hash rate has increased over time. So in 2017, when there's a monster run-up, the hash rate won't increase uh, there's some proportional increase, but it's it doesn't have the same kind of like exponential growth that the price might have. Um, it actually looks to be pretty slow and steady over time. It took a dip in you know late 2018, early 2019, but the total hash rate has recovered since then. And I think they point to this. So from 2009 to June 2019, the total mining revenue, including mining rewards and transaction fees, experienced fluctuations and increased from approximately... $9,000 in July 2010, that's $9,000, to approximately $560 million in June 2019. There were two halving events. That's when the amount of Bitcoin awarded for solving a block is halved, which occurred in November 2012 and July 2016. So I don't know, I like this kind of like layout of the industry. All this stuff is very domain specific, much more so, uh, I shouldn't say much more so than other like chip companies, but it's new. You know, it's traditional chips like have been around for quite a while. I think a lot of people are comfortable with how that industry works. This is a little different. So I'm glad they kind of like laid all this stuff out. So that's the, that's like almost a hundred percent of their business, right? There's like 99.6%, 4%, like right around there. So they have a small business that has to do with AI ASIC applications. So they get into this industry starting on page 107 or so. So, I don't know, do you want to maybe walk through like how this industry works and how it's a bit different? Yeah, I'm sure, you know, people have, who are curious about the chip industry have heard of CPUs and 
GPUs, especially, you know, we talked about NVIDIA a little while back. And now there's all this talk of uh, ASICs and these companies that are doing custom chip design or, you know, these fabulous chip companies. And so I thought it would be good to just cover the an overview of what sort of yep. chips that are out there. And this came up because you had mentioned recently that chip manufacturing is very capital intensive. And it's interesting to see companies like Canon coming up that are making chips. And so it'd be good to see the different types of chips and what drives their innovation. So, you know, I think first of all, it's important to note that not every company that designs chips uh, manufactures chips. Back in the maybe late 80s or 90s, a fab was relatively inexpensive. I think you could get going with chip manufacturer in the realm of high six, low seven figures. And now it's um, orders and orders of magnitude higher. So uh, starting off with CPUs, you know, CPU is your central processing unit. It's the thing that you have in your phone and laptop and desktop and all variety of devices. And the thing that differentiates it from everything else is that it can execute a broad set of instructions. So it's really good for doing all sorts of computing. A modern CPU, it's basically just um, millions, Mm -hmm. like just a massive number of transistors and anywhere from one to a few dozen cores usually. So in like your consumer grade hardware, I think my laptop has like an eight core. You'll see four, eight, and I think now you're starting to see 16 for server CPUs, they can go a bit higher. For a long time, it was just really this processor that people were making faster and faster and faster. And then uh, one of the ways to do that was by uh, decreasing the minimum feature size during the uh, manufacturing process. Oh, what do you mean by that? So if you imagine like you have a chip of one inch by one inch, the more stuff you can pack into it, like the more transistors you can pack into it, the more it can do. Uh, really just uh, dumbing this down. So mm-hmm. the smaller you can make stuff, the more stuff you can pack onto that chip, essentially. And so, like, you know, Intel currently has like a 10 nanometer manufacturing process. There are some people that claim to have a 7 nanometer manufacturing process. And it's like apples to oranges between the different companies. But essentially, a lot of the innovation in the CPU space has come from, A, adding more cores, as I mentioned, but really from decreasing the manufacturing processes down dramatically over the last decade or two. Yep. And this innovation this way requires a massive investment, which is why you only see big players in this space. So the smallest processes, manufacturing processes are Samsung, TSMC, and Intel. And there's, I think, just under a dozen companies that manufacture modern uh, chips, but really only three players that can do the absolute smallest stuff. And this is the capital intensive process you, you had mentioned where, you know, if you wanted to come in and try and compete with Intel, you, you realistically wouldn't be able to because they've got billions of dollars into actual chip manufacture at that level. And how like commoditized do you think CPUs are at this point? You know, we'll get into like GPUs and all, you know, custom, we're going to talk about custom ASICs, AI, ML chips. But uh, as far as CPUs go, like, how do you think about commoditization of that kind of sub-segment? Yeah, it's pretty, uh, I mean, so the industry has changed a lot in the last 10 years too because of mobile. But in thinking in terms of normal computing, which was really just like server, desktop, laptop, you had Intel and maybe 
AMD producing some sort of a four core, eight core, two core solution for laptops and desktops, and then something a little more for for servers. And that was it. And it's a massive investment to d- for a new chip architecture. And then they have to m- manufacture that at a tremendous volume. And so you'll see Intel will roll out a new architecture, and it usually sticks around for a couple of years till they're you know, able to do something dramatically different. Mm-hmm. And then going to uh, GPUs, so with CPUs, we had mentioned that there's a you know one to a few dozen very fast cores that are able to do a broad range of tasks. So they're sort of useful. They can do anything. With a GPU, it's much more limited in the types of instructions it can handle. So it, it can't uh, do everything a CPU can, which is why you know you'll have like low cost computer. Especially back in the day, you'd have a low cost computer that just had one CPU, no GPU or anything else, and the CPU would actually handle the graphics and everything. Mm-hmm. Because it's slower, but it can actually do everything. Uh, with a GPU, the core is slower than that of a CPU, but it can have thousands. So you, you end up having this structure that has uh, massive like parallelism. So it's really good for parallel computing and performing repetitive tasks. So that's graphics-related stuff, uh, mining, and doing simple mathematical operations on massive data sets which is essentially ML and AI. In terms of like what drives the innovation, you have similar high capital issues at play here. You're again dealing with manufacturing very complex, like very small chips. And so you have uh, Intel, NVIDIA, and AMD as the big players, with Intel not really focused on like the dedicated GPU products that like you and I would like would buy to build a mining rig or a gaming computer or doing ML and AI. They're generally had been focused on internal chips for that go along with their uh, CPUs, but I, I think they've branched more into the space recently. But NVIDIA and AMD were sort of the big players in the space for a long time. So yeah, so essentially the nature of having to miniaturize everything and how difficult that is resulted in a consolidation of chip manufacturers over the last few decades because the capital requirements have gone way, way, way higher than they, they used to. But in the last few years or even 10 years, we're starting to see the industry change up a little bit because of two separate industries that we'll talk about, arguably there's three, that have a significant overlap in the type of computing they need, even though from the outside, they don't seem similar. I know when you gave your overview of Canon, you you know mentioned that cryptocurrency and then MLAI don't seem like they have much in common. And from a domain perspective, that's probably true. But from like a, the types of mathematical operations they deal with, there's a lot more Mm -hmm. similarity. Uh, So in the case of cryptocurrency mining, you have a need to maximize your speed at solving a specific algorithm while minimizing your hardware and electricity costs. And often these algorithms are heavily parallelizable. And then for ML and AI, particularly for mobile and embedded devices, you have a similar need for low power consumption while solving a specific set of mathematical problems. So what this ends up resulting in is a demand for custom chips designed for uh, very specific problems, which brings us to ASICs. So an ASIC is an application-specific integrated circuit. It's basically a chip, really most of the time an SOC. And you see that term uh, SOC thrown around. It stands for system on a chip. And what that means is, Back in the day, your CPU would just be like your processor. 
And nowadays, for performance reasons, power consumption, for various reasons, the chip that's manufactured is actually more complex. It'll The processor will live alongside the memory and some other components. But getting back to ASICs, it's basically an SOC designed for a specific application, most famously mining Bitcoin. And what's interesting about these is they do have a high upfront design cost, but in, in terms right. of millions, not like a billion dollars or anything. But if you produce the ASIC in large volumes, then the cost for actually executing your task, whether that's the Bitcoin algorithm or some ML algo, your actual cost for executing that task in terms of electricity and hardware cost is orders of magnitude better. And you can actually prototype these using a FPGA. So the reason that's interesting is that if you are a small company without a fab, you can essentially design, you know, do a lot of your design work and prototyping work using something like an FPGA, which isn't that expensive to do. And then once you've validated your designs, then go to a chip manufacturer and do the mass production. Gotcha. And I guess a little bit of history with on the Bitcoin ASIC side. You know, you when when the network was first launched, you could mine the you could mine using like a laptop, basically. And I yeah, think that's what I think somebody. I don't know how much time into it, but it was a, in a relatively short amount of time. Someone worked on uh, on an, on like a custom chip to mine, and that eventually just spawned the what we're seeing now, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it was sort of an arms race where people started with the CPU, and I think people figured out that hey, uh, it's actually way better with the GPU that I'm not using when I'm not playing games, and then obviously the custom chip design is the is the final stage. And that's affected design decisions for other cryptocurrencies that um, we had a whole podcast on this on like ASIC resistant coins and how it's pretty much, you know, it's tough to do. Yeah, exactly. And if you you can imagine now based on what we, what we've spoken about, you know, something that is very parallelizable is particularly vulnerable to being asic for lack of a better term. And so if you could, you know, some of the techniques to avoid that are requiring a lot of memory or making something that cannot easily be parallelized so it requ- like it has to be done by a CPU where you you can't achieve that same order of magnitude of parallelism uh, a relatively expensive CPU will only give you 32 cores and then uh, you know this brings us to the topic of specialization i want to discuss just a few other examples of specialized chips or ASICs that we've seen uh, in the wild. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there's the the all the Bitcoin miners is one thing. And then we're seeing specialized chips and in particular ASICs uh, in the ML slash uh, AI space as well. So Google is now on their third generation, I believe, with their TPU, um, which is the uh, tensor processing unit. And uh, TensorFlow is their library for symbolic math that's used for a bunch of ML and AI stuff. And so the TPU is a specialized ASIC that's meant to do uh, like TensorFlow calculations. There's also a uh, big demand for chips that are would not really be classified as ASICs in the sense that they're still a little bit more general purpose, but are still specialized for specific tasks. Um, one of the big ones is uh, image processing stuff. 
So you've probably noticed over the last few years how like smartphone cameras have gotten uh, incredibly good at like automatic image post-processing. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially an ML problem. And in, in mobile, what ends up happening is, you know, companies like Google will write the models, implement the models, and then design custom hardware that helps solve that very specific problem. So once they figure out how to do image optimization really well, uh, they'll build a chip for it and like put it into your phone. So I think starting with the Google Pixel 2 and then the Google Pixel 3, they had like a custom chip that was just for the image processing. Yep. Which is pretty cool. Like phones, again, just had CPUs for a while. And now we're starting to see a lot of these uh, custom chips that are handling particularly photography. And now I think you'll see more as like voice recognition is becoming uh, popular. So one quick thing, like you mentioned uh, this arms race idea in the context of Bitcoin, but IEEE, they have a magazine Spectrum. It's really, it's a great magazine. Um, I'll link to it in the show notes, but I just wanted to read from it because it's related to what you're talking about right now. So they say the trend towards microchip specialization is turning into an arms race. Gartner projects that specialized chip sales for AI in 2019, 8 billion to reach more than 34 billion in 2023. So that's in five years. That's, you know, three, four, no, it's more than 4X in, in, in a handful of years. NVIDIA's internal projections place the market for data center GPUs, uh, which I guess are most, almost solely used for powered deep learning at 50 billion in the same time frame. So these are, these are big, big numbers. Yeah, uh, you, had, you had asked me earlier about the commoditization, and I guess I didn't necessarily give a good answer to that, but... With this in mind, I think you, you'll you start seeing a situation where just regular CPUs will become, I mean, they are essentially becoming commoditized in the sense that you just buy cloud computing as a commodity and you don't really care what the hard underlying hardware is. Mm-hmm. And then you have GPUs, which are there for building the ML models. And then all of the like implementation stuff, which is everything in mobile, embedded devices, et cetera, is going to be all of these specialized chips. And that's where all the intelligence is going to live. In terms yep. of like IP. So they also claim, so in the next five years, we'll see massive investments in custom silicon from all the big players like Amazon, ARM, Apple, IBM, Intel, Google, Microsoft, NVIDIA, Qualcomm. So, and then there's also startups in the mix. So this stuff, I know you had a couple uh, a couple things you want to talk about there too. So definitely interested in hearing that. But they have a list here of AI like startup companies, which I always thought is like, kind, you know, because it's, some of it can be so capital intensive, always surprised by this, but it is very interesting. So some of their names are Cerebras, Graphcore, Grok, Mythic AI, Samba, Nova Systems, and Wave Computing. And they've raised in aggregate about a billion dollars. Yeah, Grok was one of the ones that had caught my attention recently because they just came out of stealth mode. And their whole idea is this, uh, they call it compiler-defined hardware, which seems... An initial glance, like, wait, what? Um, <laughs> but it's it's essentially a programmable chip where like output of your model defines how the chip gets programmed, and so you get these uh, massive efficiencies come compute time. So it's it's almost like a step between designing a custom ASIC, it's or manually having to. It's like the way I imagine it is, uh, if you were in the stage where you you have your model. And you're building a prototype for your ASIC, like if your compiler could do that for you. That's how I understand it. They haven't really said a lot about what they do. So in the future, I think I'd like to cover this more. But if that's the way things are going, that's pretty neat. But yeah, so it looks like CPU, GPU markets will have to be dominated by the big players just because of 
the capital costs that you had mentioned. But we are going to see all these smaller ML AI crypto companies that have hardware and software and how they work together as, as uh, part of their IP. Yep. Uh, I thought an interesting thing from like a sales perspective on this, uh, on the chip stuff is, um, so they, they kind of liken this new, so I'll just read it. It's written better than anything I would say. To be clear, specialized AI chips are both important and welcomed as their catalyst for transforming cutting edge AI research into real world applications. However, the flood of new AI chips, each one faster and more specialized than the next, will also seem like a throwback to the rise of enterprise software. We can expect cutthroat sales deals and software specialization aimed at locking developers into working with just one vendor. And they kind of like, they relay that to say 15 years ago, cloud services like AWS, Azure, Box, Dropbox, and all them, they all came to market within a very short time period. Like what would that have meant for these kind of like cutthroat enterprise sales deals. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. And you even have parallels in like the GPU space where like for a while, you know, NVIDIA had CUDA, which only worked with NVIDIA stuff and was its own sort of closed universe. But in a a market where you had much fewer entrants, if you start having a lot more entrants doing proprietary software hardware combos, you can get a lot of that fragmentation. Yep. So a follow-up question I had, you know, just thinking about all this stuff is, so if IP is increasingly handled by like these small startups or by companies that are more in the software space, how does this affect the companies that were traditionally, like your Intels and NVIDIAs of the world? So I would think that this could become like partnership heavy. I guess it also depends on like what level of specialization we're going to see from some of these guys. Like, I don't know how different Grok, for example, is. I mean, I don't really don't know much about the Grok compared to like Cerebras. But, you know, say one of the startups is more focused on deep learning for financial applications, for example, or another one is more focused on some other part of like a computer vision or image recognition or something like that. So if we're going to get more and more specialized, it's possible that a lot of the startups can actually play at the same, you know, along with each other just for different sets of customers. But if the startups kind of like do the same thing as one another, and I don't think that's the case. There, of course, there'll be a handful that do do the same thing. And, you know, I, at that point, if this is really an arms race, I think you'll see like Intel buy one, NVIDIA buy another, and that sort of thing to compete better. But if they're all doing kind of different type of stuff, I still think they'll need to partner at the hardware level because they just won't be able to produce the amount of chips they need. But it's possible they can all coexist and focus on kind of like specialized applications. Yeah, it's it's perhaps a net benefit for everyone in the space because it's essentially an expansion of the industry rather than the market share shifting one way or another. Right. Yeah, that's probably one way. I don't know if I 100% buy the enterprise sales like 15 years ago thing. There's probably some parallels, but um, if the applications themselves are different, uh, you know, that that can mean a very different thing. Yeah. Well, you you want to talk about like uh, TPUs, right? Uh, So I mentioned uh, TPUs. That was the uh, tensor processing unit. Right, right, right. Uh, So that was the like... ASIC uh, for ML that Google has that's going to be doing symbolic math and they're going to be offering it as a cloud service. So I don't yep. know that you can go out and buy a TPU, but it's more so like you buy cycles on their cloud service. Yep. One thing I thought was kind of funny, so on page seven of this F1, 
They have TPU uh, defined. They say, you know, TPU is tensor processing unit, which is an AI accelerator ASIC. But then there's no mention of TPU in the rest of the document. And also there's no tensor thing either. It's a Google specific, like TensorFlow is a Google thing and TPU is a, is a like Google branded product. So I don't know what they would have. They maybe just mention it to draw people's attention to like, hey, look at this big known company that's in the same space. Right. Like it's it's a form of adding legitimacy. Yeah. But they don't really have any association with TPUs beyond that. Gotcha. Like especially if you're like a big like if you're a Bitcoin mining company, a lot of people are gonna have a negative connotation. And if you just throw in there that we also do ML and AI, it's not clear how the two are related. But the TPU is like the closest parallel to what they do. Yep. So that's how I understood it. Mm-hmm. So on the filing side, I think that I, in general, I thought this was a pretty good set of risk factors that they laid out. Um, they all have to do with, actually, they, they have like a good 10, 15 risk factors associated just with Bitcoin. And they basically say, you know, I'm kind of summing it up, but they say like Bitcoin price affects them. Any kind of legal matters associated with Bitcoin is going to affect them. If they can't get, you know, foundry capacity for their Bitcoin machines, that that's going to affect them as well. And they're all kind of saying the same thing. Like it's very, it's a very cyclical business. I was just surprised how cyclical it was. I, I I understood, you know, kind of broadly like how cyclical it can be. But if you go down to page ninety, section is called quarterly results of op- operations. So they lay out quarterly results from March two thousand seventeen to June two thousand nineteen. And if you look at their gross profits, they're like humming along at like, you know, when when the market was good, when Bitcoin's price was rising almost every day, they go from 43 to 40 to 50 to the top you see is 74. Okay. And then it takes a big dip, like a huge dip. First of all, like going from 40 to 70 in gross margins is is pretty dramatic in a in a year period. But then to go from, you know, 74 to like negative gross margins. You know, they had a whole year of sub 10% gross margins. So just to give kind of context, if you look at NVIDIA's gross margins, they're in a very cyclical business too, but it doesn't move that much. Uh, like a 10% swing over the last few years, Yeah, like low to high. Yeah, the worst I can see is like during the credit crunch right around there, like 17%. But, yeah. you know, 40s and 50s are pretty common and we're getting into like the 60s now. Yeah, And when things are humming it looks like their best gross margin quarter has been around 65% or so. But, you know, as an investor, you don't want to see these gross margins jump around a ton. And if 99% of Canon's business is tied to a highly volatile asset and speculative asset, then it makes sense that it would jump around that much. And also makes sense why they want to be doing stuff other than Bitcoin mining. So they actually on page 91 is they lay out the ASPs, the average selling prices of their different Bitcoin mining machines to give you a sense of like how much they can fluctuate. But it's definitely, you know, when they take giant gross margin dips, it's because their ASPs have gotten hit. You know, there's probably extra capacity out there and there's no buyers and that sort of thing. Got it. And it's interesting because they also show uh, prices by like computing power, which is an interesting uh, like unit. Oh, ASP per t, uh, terahash, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is essentially the you know the the most relevant unit in terms of what you're buying when you're buying these things, 
I guess the the compute power and then the electricity consum- consumption per unit of compute power. But it's it's interesting to see that in a filing. All right. So we've talked about Canon. We've talked a little bit about uh, the industry and that sort of thing. Like, why don't we talk through some of the implications of uh, of these this like new wave of startups, I guess, because um, these numbers are gigantic, you know, going from eight billion to, you know, 30s to 50 billion over five years, four or five years is dramatic. Right. And I guess I have a few questions around that one. I'll just talk kind of generally like the questions I have about it. Like how much of this is going to require external investment by NVIDIA, by AMD, by Intel and all that to kind of like hit those numbers? And I don't mean like internal investment in salespeople. I mean internal investment in in design and like chip design and that sort of thing. So that's one question. And then I guess like... Broadly speaking, the way I'm thinking about this is if I wanted to be long NVIDIA, I'm not super interested in, of course, I'm interested in GPUs because that is the majority of their business, but I'm definitely interested in their growth prospects. And I I imagine their growth prospects would come from like all the custom and application specific stuff, not ASICs per se, but like all that kind of custom things that they're working on for ML and deep learning and so on. So I don't know, what's your take on that? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at CPU companies, GPU companies, whether that's like Intel and AMD or like NVIDIA and ATI, you see that because they have such massive R&D costs into like each generation of chip architecture, you tend to see each one leapfrogging the other every time a new generation comes out. And if one is a dud, it affects their sales for uh, years and years and years. So it's it's really important to be at at your very, like for them to come out with the best possible thing that they could do. And I think that a lot of these small chip manufacturers are going to be a great acquisition target for these companies with the big R&D budgets. Because if you're planning on investing nine or 10 figures into R&D for uh, you know, your next architecture of your GPU or or some custom chip that you want to work on, mm-hmm. it's paying even a couple hundred million dollars for the best and brightest people to work on it so that you leapfrog your competitor in sales for the next half a decade or a decade is, I think, a no-brainer. Yep. And I think that's how you'll see it play out because essentially that's how you've seen the industry behave in these uh, like super high in investment spaces. Yep. I'm just looking at NVIDIA's uh, balance sheet. I mean, they have like $14 billion. And we said, what do we say? Like a billion dollars or so has been invested on the venture capital side into these um, like chip startups. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's nothing. I think Grok, Grok is like 70 people or something, if I'm not mistaken. I think on their site or somewhere, they basically say that our whole company is like half the size of the team that like NVIDIA or Intel would have working yep. on a single chip. So it's... Like if their product is actually really impressive from a technical perspective, uh, you know, Grok or any, anyone else, I think there's a lot of strong case to be made for acquisitions, even in the absence of the actual chip performing well in the marketplace. I think it's like a, buying the ability to generate high quality IP is tremendously valuable when you're investing that much into each generation yep. of hardware and it affects your sales yep. that dramatically. I think the economics just makes sense there. Yeah. So like if I wanted to be long NVIDIA, I would be watching what they're doing on the private market side because I think it's pretty dramatic yeah. what it could do 
application now. If I saw NVIDIA go spend a billion dollars buying up these small chip companies that I find like impressive from a technical perspective, like that would make me much more yep. likely to be long. So you heard it first on the QuantLayer podcast, because I, I know all these like equity analysts for NVIDIA, you know, typically you see, oh, if they buy this company, if a you know traditional tech company buys something as a kind of like a speculative, they treat these investments as kind of speculative plays. And maybe in some industries that makes sense. But I think in particular, we've talked about this like throughout this episode and in the past, but I think that this is going to be a little different, especially if you do buy the kind of ML and AI story that's coming down the pipe. Yeah, exactly. Hey, everyone, you've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks.